0: Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Innovative uses of chemistry and physics to help keep people safe. Now, extreme cold can cause all kinds of damage to cells and to people as well. So how can we develop better treatments to prevent damage from extreme cold, like frostbite? And how can we design extreme surfaces to fight back against bacteria and other invaders, using nothing but physical properties? This week, exciting applications of chemistry. Now, as it's here in the Southern Hemisphere through summer, it's nice to imagine being cold and chilly. Much better than being in 45 degree heat or high humidity. But being in the cold has its own problems. And the thing about the cold is that whether you're growing plants or spending a lot of time out there, a rapid freezing can lead to all kinds of damage in living cells. If you want a better illustration of it, watch what happens on YouTube or somewhere else where you put, say, a flower into a batch of liquid nitrogen and, say, smash it onto a desk. You'll see that it shatters in an incredibly brittle way. And this is in many ways because the cells are there frozen become hard and then susceptible to brittle-like bracking. Even something as soft and supple like a flower petal becomes incredibly brittle and shatters. This happens to other materials too. Plastics that go past their glass transition temperature have a similar thing happen to them. You can even cook an egg, in a manner of speaking, through the use of really cold liquid nitrogen. All of this to say that when you get really cold, well, it does some weird things to living cells. People who grow plants, farmers, gardeners alike, know the damage that frost can do to their plants as they grow. And this is also the case for people who are exposed to severe cold, like is happening right now in the northern hemisphere, at various times of winter. When you develop frostbite, it can kill skin cells, but it can actually also cause harm deeper down to tissues and muscle and bone, even causing either secondary infections or permanent nerve damage. Sometimes if these cells have already died, of course, this can lead to things like Severe wounds, scarring, and in the most extreme of cases, even amputation. So, frostbite is serious business. It's a real danger that people who live in extreme cold environments have to contend with. And staying warm isn't always necessarily a straightforward thing to do. Particularly if you say, working in a place that's extremely cold and don't have access to adequate shelter consistently or maybe are doing a large trek or working in the Antarctic, you name it. All of these situations where you're exposed to pretty cold situations in general. Now, one of the other problems is that while we have a lot of therapies and treatments to help with frostbite, best results for these treatments are when you get there early. Like with many things, the faster you get there, closer to when the event occurred or the freezing occurred, the better chance you have of saving some of the cells, heating them up, Thawing them before the actual cells die themselves. Now, things like rapid rewarming of an effective limb, for example, tries to reverse the tissue from freezing. But if many of the cells already die by the time you do that, well, it's not really that effective. You can have heating devices sewn into clothing or some kind of antifreeze proteins, but these are impractical sometimes and often also difficult to have safety concerns. So that's where researchers been published in the journal ACS Applied Biomaterials with principal investigator Manaya Ganguly and other colleagues including lead author Anshal Gupta. They're trying to find a way to have some kind of preventative mechanism that they could apply that drew on experience that they had with preserving cells in the lab. Now there's a lot of properties when you think about preventing frostbite, i.e. preventing skin cells or body parts from getting damaged from the extreme cold, that's pretty much in line with how labs like to preserve biological things that they're studying, even though they might be working at pretty cold temperatures. Now, they call this cryopreservation, and there's a couple of different mechanisms you can use. For example, dimethyl sulfoxide, DMSO, keeps ice crystals from forming inside the cells themselves, shattering and cutting and being generally jagged. And you can use other things like PVA, polyvinyl alcohol, which actually prevents ice crystals in the gaps between cells. Now, if you get ice crystals between the cells, then they've got a sharp pointy thing stuck between the soft membranes of the cell that can also lead to damage. So these two materials are often used in the lab in small amounts in certain ways to keep cells alive and preventing them getting damaged. But it's exactly what you want to have in a frostbite treatment. So the researchers tried to test the ability of different kinds of amounts of DMSO and PVA, either on their own or in a mixed combination, to see if they could prevent the death of cultured cells in a dish that were then exposed to a freezing temperature. This is pretty much the idea of saying, okay, we know that this has some preventative properties. How can we really isolate this in the most truest of lab conditions, cells on their own in a lab getting frozen? Now, what they found is a good ratio where they had around 2% of DMSO combined with around 1.6 milligrams per milliliter of PVA. And if they used this mix, they had a really, really high cell survival rate, around 80%. They protected the cell membrane and also the interior cytoskeleton. Now, they called this blend syn-AFP. And Also, after they rethought it and the extreme cold was taken away, their cells were still able to divide and express protein in a relatively normal way, even though they've been subjected to a pretty extreme cold situation. All right, so then how do you apply this weird thing to, say, something? Because, you know, it's very different to take a lab environment of a single couple of cells to, well, a much more realistic test case, in this case, on mice models. So they mixed the Synapse win with commercially available aloe Vera creams, just as like a carrier for this particular chemical combination. Now, when they did so, when they applied that cream onto the skin of some mice for around 15 minutes before subjecting that mice to some pretty cold situations, the cream had a pretty great result. It reduced frostbite, wound size, tissue damage, inflammation, and actually also sped up healing, especially when compared to the control. Now, if that's only if you applied it around fifteen minutes before that cold snap occurred. Apply it too early and well it tends to get absorbed and evaporate away and doesn't do that much. But what they did see is that you could keep reapplying this and it wouldn't really have any negative impacts. It's just like putting on lots of cream. So that means you could have lots of frequent coatings in the same way you might with sunscreen that would enable you to actually have effectively frostbite cream, preventative action to prevent frostbite. And this would be pretty amazing to see. Now, of course, this is a first test experimental treatment in a mice model. So a lot of way to go before you're sticking onto humans and you probably wanna increase the duration of protection and other factors. But as a proof of concept of a way to create a reappliable sunscreen effectively, but for frostbite, that's a really novel idea and an amazing piece of research, taking what's already done on small scale for individual cells in labs and scaling it up to people scale, to have a tool that can be used to help people prevent or reduce the impact of frostbite in dangerous situations. Some great research published in the journal ACS Applied Biomaterials with lead author Anchal Gupta, other authors Beti Reshma, Praveen Singh, Etakoli, Sangupat, and Munai Ganguli. We talk a lot in this podcast about the ongoing war between bacteria and also humans or fungus or whatever it is that's fighting against these bacteria invaders. The rise of antibiotic resistance and the challenges that hospitals and just general treatments have with making sure that their treatments still work. Now hospitals also have a bigger issue. They've got a lot of surfaces to clean but so does everywhere, from high-volume traffic spaces to areas in offices to people's homes. And one of the things that we can use, we know, is that certain metals are less conducive homes for bacteria to live on. This is why you will see certain metals used inside hospitals as fixtures and fittings, because, well, when bacteria land on them, they find a pretty nasty place to live. They either get their cells ruptured or perhaps even damaged through just by existing on this metal. And that's to do with the structure and the behavior of that middle surface. Now, you can make other materials antibacterial by applying some kind of coating to them. This is often called like wet-based chemistry. Now, this is pretty interesting. and We do it for a lot of different things. We apply coating layers onto a surface, and that means that that surface can become antibacterial. The problem is that this often is done to surgical tools, implants, heavily touched surfaces, you name it. The challenge is that, well, these areas often use expensive and complex processes that are also pretty intensive on things like solvents, so also not great for the environment. It also become difficult to scale up. So there's other alternatives, though, rather than using wet-based chemistry to create antimicrobial coatings. You can turn to plasma, that fourth state of matter. And with the plasma-based engineering approach, you can yield some pretty amazing antibacterial properties onto all kinds of materials, not just metals, but also applying to ceramics and plastics, you name it. Now, a paper was published in the Journal of Applied Physics, with researchers from Belgium and Czech Republic and Italy. And in this paper, it's more of a tutorial, an overview of the methods of plasma engineering and how it can be used effectively, make all kinds of new antimicrobial coatings. Now, this paper, published in the journal American Institute of Physics, involved researchers Anton Nikrofov, Chulong Ma, Andrei Shukorov, and Fabio Palumbo. Now, what they published in this tutorial, this overview, include a lot of the different mechanisms you can do with plasma-based engineering. You can create contact-killing type surfaces, anti-fouling surfaces, or even surfaces that actually release antibiotic-like drugs. Now, what does all that mean? Well, they create these different types of surface properties, or maybe all three of them together on the one material, and they do this using a, generally like an etching or basically exposing the plasma to the surface, That's kind of like an etching-like process. And let's talk a little detail about each of those different functions that you can create using this plasma engineering method. The first one, contact killing, is a pretty straightforward one. Basically, there's large spikes, large compared to the bacteria, um, small compared to us, microscopic levels. And what they do is actually puncture any microorganisms that happen to land on that surface. And if you look at the effectiveness of these solutions, it's really, really high. One study showed that a plasma-etched black silicon nanopillar-type structure all these little spikes was able to kill a huge range of bacteria just as soon as they're applied to that surface, including an antibiotic resistant bacteria, Staphylococcus aureus, which is a really serious skin infection that can get to the bloods, lungs, hearts, and bones. So basically, with this contact killing method, you basically cover the surface in a large amount of spikes, micro spikes. And this makes it effectively like when the bacteria lands on that surface, they just get punctured or pulled apart by the surface itself. Now, let's say it manages to cling on and doesn't get completely torn up to shreds by that surface. Well, then what can happen on any type of surface is you can form a biofilm. And a biofilm can be pretty dangerous because it's a perfect breeding ground for all kinds of dangerous microbial. And great, what you want to do to stop this is actually have some kind of anti-fouling material. Fouling being basically the formation of a biofilm and anti-fouling is trying to prevent it. And there's a lot of anti-fouling materials out there in nature, like what we see on the wings of small insects like cicada and dragonfly. And so these have, again, these small nanopillars on them that actually try to break up and prevent the surface tension forming in the biofilm. But they also are able to be hydroscopic. They can actually repel water, the same thing that you might see on a lotus leaf. By creating these hydroscopic Surfaces, you basically repel all the water, no water, no ability to form a biofilm. So, you can use this plasma polymerized super hydrophobic thin coatings, super water repelling materials like you have on a lotus leaf or any other kind of hydrophobic coating. And they're really, really useful to prevent any type of microorganism flourishing because if you remove moisture, then they can't form. So first, we've got spikes to kill on contact any of these microbes. Well, let's say they happen to survive that. Well, if you get rid of all the moisture and wick it away, well, then it means that you don't actually form a biofilm on that surface as well. But let's say you still have something that's really stubborn and clinging to life and sometimes bacteria are like that. Well, you can actually leave some drug release surfaces that slowly release antimicrobial compounds right at the time they need it i.e something is present like a bacteria is present on the surface then they f- manage to avoid the spikes still manage to cling with whatever moisture they've got and then some antibiotic re- material is released at them and they die that's pretty much like that last punch to come out of line of defense now you could use this to have high dose of highly targeted locations and you can think about something for surgery this is a great example of where that might be useful and you could release for example vancomycin, which is a common antibiotic, and you you encase it in these spherical-like particles and leave that on the surface. Basically, you have some kind of aerosol spray-like plasma distribution process that deploys this material, this plasma and drug combination, onto a surface, coats it, and then means that if any sort of bacteria tries to get in survive all the other mechanisms and they die from the actual slow release surface release of that antibiotic rather than relying on pumping and ingesting the antibiotic into your blood and waiting for it actually to get into the body so there's lots of these different plasma based methods which are really amazing the type of mechanisms you use can include low pressure and even atmospheric types of etching polymerization of this plasma sputtering gas aggregation of nanoparticles or even aerosol spray-like deposition Now, this is really cool, there's a lot of great mechanisms you can use with plasma engineering, but there are also some constraints, which is why we don't see it running away as the major treatment makers today. We probably will see more and more like it, but there are some drawbacks to consider. And these drawbacks are pretty straightforward when you think about it. What is you normally get with any type of coating is basically having a poor coating adhesion. If you don't get that first layer right, it can be hard to get it to stick and stay. there's a stability issue as well if you have a wet surface and aqueous media well you could displace all these biomaterials and all the nanoparticles you developed the other problem is of course if you use lots of nanoparticles to make all these spikes and have all these coatings there are also potential long-term risks and impacts of toxicity on cells that need to be investigated and understood before they're used widely but all that being said it's a pretty universal mechanism that can be used to coat a large amount of different materials that doesn't rely so heavily on solvents or antibiotics that could be fought up against resistance. These are physical-based mechanisms that it's hard for bacteria to develop a lot of resistance to, and if you deploy a number of them at once, then you can really make a surface that can kill pretty much anything bad that lands on it while keeping people safe. From implants to medical devices to contact services in large traffic areas, plasma engineering, promises a way to create better antibacterial materials that we can use in our everyday life and our medical environments as well. It's a great primer on the topic of plasma-based engineering, published in the American Institute of Physics journal, Applied Physics. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point.